If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, please turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 25 this evening, Acts 2, 25. Here at Calvary, I always love for you guys to follow along with us. We have access to God's inspired living word. We can have it right there in our hands, and so follow along with us. We're in the middle of Peter's sermon, the first sermon of the church age, delivered to a crowd of thousands. We've all seen movies or TV shows whose plots unfold in a courtroom. Often there's great tension surrounding that one person who will serve as an eyewitness to a crime. Those scenes usually go one of two ways. When the witness is asked if the person they saw that night is in the courtroom, they either bravely point their finger and say, he's right there. <laughs> or they say the prosecutors are, you know, very confident and casual and say, you know, Mr. So-and-so, did, do you see the person in the courtroom today? And the star witness suddenly changes their tune and says, I don't know what I saw that night. And then there's a mad dash all the time as the lawyers are scrambling for papers trying to salvage their case. And they say, you, you swore on a signed affidavit. And all the scenes are the same in movies, Right. There are whole movies even dedicated to the protection and delivery of witnesses so that they can give their testimony at trial. Clint Eastwood's 1977 film, The Gauntlet, is one. Bruce Willis and Most Deaf were in one a few years back called 16 Blocks. Of course, there's Harrison Ford's 1985 movie, Witness. It's all about that. We have laws against intimidating a witness. That's a good thing. We have the Witness Protection Program which I learned since the 70s has uh, protected close to 20,000 witnesses in the program. All of this happens because we understand the power and the importance of eyewitness testimony. And of course, in the real world, it's not always foolproof. Eyewitness testimony in the courtroom is not always 100% reliable. But the sworn words of an eyewitness carry great weight. When we left off last time, Peter had been explaining to the multitudes why the miracles of Pentecost that they had just seen had happened. And then he quickly pivoted to speak to his audience about the coming future judgment and their need for salvation. As he preached, he revealed that there is only one way to be saved, and that is through faith in the Messiah. And then he then identified Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Now, here there was a problem for this Jewish audience because Jesus had died. That was obvious. Peter didn't deny it. In fact, he said, you guys were involved in killing Jesus yourselves. And the Jewish concept of the Messiah did not include a Savior that was slain. Not only that, but Jesus had not thrown off their oppressors, the government of Rome. He had not established a world peace on the throne in Jerusalem. We remember as we read through the Gospels, even the disciples, even the 12 kept thinking back in the Gospels that Jesus would have to do that right away if indeed he was the Messiah. They keep coming to him and asking him, hey, are you now, what's the holdup? Are you now going to establish your kingdom? But here in the second half of his sermon, Peter is going to serve not only as an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, but he will actually also pull double duty. He serves as an eyewitness and as an expert witness. That's another kind of witness that gets called in a trial a lot of times. You have people that were there when the thing happened, and then you have expert witnesses that come and give their quote-unquote expert opinion, that speak with authority, and that give information that the rest of the people in the room, like the jury, don't necessarily have. 
And so Peter's going to speak also as an expert witness, identifying Jesus as the Messiah and proving from the scriptures that he fulfilled the prophecies that God has sent through King David. He had already spoken to them from the book of Joel. We saw that last time. And now he starts referencing the prophecies of David from a few of his psalms. So putting in at verse 25, we read this. Peter speaking, says, For David says concerning him, the Messiah, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. The Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, declares that this passage from Psalm 16 is ultimately speaking about Jesus Christ. When David wrote it, uh, we're not exactly sure how much he realized he was writing about the Messiah. Certainly he was writing out of his own personal experience, but we get to the New Testament here and the Holy Spirit says, hey, this passage is about Jesus Christ. And when the Bible comments on itself like this, that is the, the interpretation. We're not to try to assign, uh, assign some additional distinctive interpretation in addition to what the Bible has said about itself. For example, we think of uh, the parables in the Gospels, uh, the parable of the sower, right? Jesus tells this story about the parable of the sower, and then the disciples come to him, and they say, what, what did that mean? And then he explains it to them beat by beat, and Jesus says, the sower sows God's word. And so he's commenting on another par- portion of Scripture. And when the Bible makes this sort of definite comment on itself, we are not then free to come along and say, well, I think Jesus also meant we're to go around sowing love, or we're to go around sowing judgment, or we're to go around sowing whatever you input there yourself. Here in Psalm 16, David may not have fully understood it, but he was speaking ultimately about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because of the progressive nature of Revelation, it's made known to us what the ultimate meaning behind this passage is. And so then the question is, okay, I'm reading through the Bible, or maybe I'm going to the Psalms in the morning, and I get to Psalm 16. Does Psalm 16 now lose its value for me? You know, it's just about Jesus. Why don't I just skip over and get to Psalm 17? Well, not at all. Because you and I as Christians are included in the wonders of these verses in the following sense. Paul would later declare in Romans 6 that we are going to be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. Peter would write in his second letter that Christ has given us great and precious promises, promises which enable us to share his divine nature. And so we can take great comfort and glean a lot of excitement in these verses which describe the Messiah's resurrection, the power of which is extended to us as God's people. And what a great string of promises they are as your eyes scan back over those verses we read. The Lord with us, strengthening us, allowing us to rest in hope, filling up our hearts with gladness and rejoicing to the point that praise is just overflowing from our lips. This God who knows us and loves us so well and he is able to make known to us the ways of life, making us full of joy in his presence. I want in on that. And that's the power of the resurrection. And this amazing power is not withheld from us until after we cross over into eternity. These aren't just promises that are for us in heaven. 
Paul would say that he wanted to experience this resurrection power himself right now, and he said he wanted all of us to experience it as well in our day-to-day living. Remember, Jesus said that he gives us everlasting life, and that's not just for the moment after we die, that's from the moment of conversion forward. Everlasting life, that through us rivers of living water would be flowing out as we experience God's power and all of these things that we're reading about, the joy and the gladness and the presence of the Lord. And so we want to be people whose lives are full of joy and full of praise and full of rest as we confidently hope in our Lord and in his work. Peter continues in verse 29, he says, "'Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day.'" When Peter says here he's going to speak freely, he's announcing that he is speaking the truth with authority. And he recognizes that his statements may be seen as controversial. Indeed, as we go through the book of Acts and as you look through history and as you've maybe experienced even in your own life, this wonderful message of salvation and resurrection and hope and forgiveness was and is often met with very strange controversial reactions, violent reactions. We're going to see many times in the book of Acts as we move through it, Lord willing, that you know, people are going around to say, hey, I'm here to tell you that God will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and include you uh, in the inheritance of Jesus Christ and grant you access into heaven. And a lot of times people's response is, well, we need to kill these people. We need to brutalize them. We need to raise the church to the ground. We need to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, it wasn't just true of the book of Acts. That's happening around the world today in lots of parts of the world. People are laying down their lives to spread the wonderful message of hope that is the gospel. And so Peter says, hey, listen, I'm going to speak freely to you. And when he says that, it's not really a casual thing. No, the, the term there means that Peter is taking courage, but he's speaking boldly. He says, look, I'm going to tell you the truth, just as a good witness would in a court of law, no matter who else is sitting in the courtroom. When Peter says, let me speak freely, one resource defines the language this way. It says, the sense is boldness, the trait of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially that involve being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. And so Peter says, hey, listen, this may be controversial, this may be even dangerous, but I'm going to speak with authority to you here. I am an expert witness when it comes to what I'm talking about in this situation. Verse 30 says, therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise, uh, raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. We noticed last week that Peter connected the prophecy of Joel to real, literal events. People came around and said, hey, what's going on here? We heard a noise. You guys are speaking in these different languages. And Peter said, I'm glad you asked. What's happening is the fulfillment of part of what Joel prophesied back in what we call the Old Testament. And then he pivoted and immediately started talking about a future day of the Lord that Joel also referenced. And he said, yeah, that's also real and literal. Just like what you've seen happening is a fulfillment of prophecy, so is the day of the Lord a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled and you guys need to be saved. But here we see the same treatment of God's prophetic promises to David. 
he references David's uh, prophecies here and the covenant that God made with him. And he said, hey, look, these are real things that God said and prophesied and real things that are going to happen. Now, first, it's clear that David really thought it would be literally true what God promised to him. Not that it was an allegory, not that it was just a story he was telling him, but that it was a real true thing. And we notice how Peter described that coming king. He said, the fruit of David's body according to the flesh. He could not be more clear that this was a real literal prophecy, not allegorical, not transferable, no loopholes. And so knowing that and realizing that Jesus Christ was a real literal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, he was really an heir of King David, so also therefore the other aspects of the promises made to David must be real and literal. For example, the establishment of an earthly throne in Jerusalem. That also has to be literal, just as real as Christ's resurrection from the dead. He says, look, David's dead, and a lot of scholars think that if they were in a certain part of the temple, they would have actually been able to turn and see where David was buried. That's speculation. But he says, hey, look, David is dead. But God, remember, promised him that he was going to have an heir to sit on a real earthly throne, a real heir from David's line. And he says, and that's who Jesus is. And it's really going to happen. He really is the king. He really is going to establish a kingdom. And it's just as real as Christ's resurrection from the dead. Verse 32, he says, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Peter, the expert witness when it came to explaining the scriptures, was also an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Not just him, but many others. He could point around to his friends there. Not even just the rest of the 12, but there's at least 120 other believers there. He says, yeah, we have seen the risen Christ. Not in some weird transcendental meditation. Not in some strange sweat lodge where we were all hallucinating. When we all saw the risen Christ on multiple occasions, he talked with us and he walked with us and he supped with us and he spoke and he did things and he directed us. We'll tell you all about it. And no doubt, almost all of these people had heard the rumors. Hundreds and hundreds of people who were contemporary, who were there in the area, had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And so, no doubt, Jerusalem was all abuzz of all of this. And he says, listen, we're eyewitnesses. We have seen for ourselves, and we're spreading the word now about it. You know, in the end, each of the 12, the apostles, other than John, would lay down their lives in an effort to spread the message. Every single one of them was martyred for the preaching of the gospel, except for John. Ultimately, John was not martyred, not for lack of trying on the part of persecutors. Church history records that they tried to boil John to death in oil. He wouldn't die, so they sent him to Patmos, where he then received uh, the visions of the revelation. But each of these witnesses that Peter is, is signaling to here, Each and every one of them were true and faithful to the end, despite the personal cost. They stood up and gave that testimony and said, yeah, I saw, and I'm not going to hide that information. I'm not going to withhold that information. I'm going to come and tell you what I saw. Verse 33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And so Peter brings them back to where they had begun The crowd had gathered at the sights and sounds of Pentecost, and here, having testified of Jesus and proven that he really was the Christ, 
Peter explains that even though the Messiah had now ascended to heaven, he was still devoting his attention to mankind. Jesus was still looking down on the earth and doing things. Now, that's a remarkable thing. I realized how much I just take that for granted. Yeah, Jesus is involved in the things of the earth. Jesus is watching over my life and the lives of everyone here on the earth. But think of the love of God for us. I mean, this feels stupid to say, but think of what God could be doing right now, right? What could God be doing right now other than what he's doing, pouring out his grace and his long-suffering and his mercy and his kindness onto the earth. You know, Jesus went through, you know, the worst that anyone could have gone through, the crucifixion and all of that, living a life of rejection, being God in human flesh, all of these different things. If anybody deserved a vacation or a, a retirement, it's Jesus Christ, right? But he ascends up into heaven and he doesn't just then say, okay, well, man, that was rough. I'm going, I'm going over to create a universe where people don't have a free will, and this is going to be way better. Or he doesn't just say, hey, I'm headed off to some cosmic beach. I'm in cosmic retirement. Hey, you guys, you guys can pick up a shift for a while. What did he do? He ascended in his glory and the, right to the right hand of the Father, God of very God. And he says, okay, and now we're going to turn our attention back onto the earth. And I'm going to start immediately doing things for the people of the earth. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. We're going to establish the church. And then that church is going to be my body going throughout all the world and all the eras and all the places of human history. As I'm going to just work life to life to life to life in an unbroken chain that has lasted thousands of years. That's what Jesus has been doing all this time. From eternity past, God has been working to save and to pour out his love and his mercy and his grace for us. Of all the things God could be doing, these are the things that God is doing. Reaching out to people like us, invading our reality so that he can do great things for us and glorify himself, actively reaching out for the lost, actively loving people. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Did you know that this Old Testament verse, the Lord said to my Lord, you maybe think, yeah, I've heard that one before. This Old Testament verse is quoted in the New Testament more than any other single verse. It's quoted or referred to at least 25 times in the New Testament. It is immensely important for a lot of things. One of them is that it shows that the Messiah would be divine in nature, not just a man, not just a world-class ruler or a wise teacher, but he is divine. But it also can speak to us of the harmony of Scripture, you know, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years, yet the Old Testament and the New Testament do not disagree. They harmonize together. David and Joel don't disagree or contradict each other. David and the Gospels, they work in agreement. Jesus didn't come along and study the Old Testament scriptures and say, that one can apply to me and that one can apply to me. I'll pick a couple of these that make me look good and pull them out of context and then apply them to himself. No, Jesus Christ is the culmination of all that was prophesied about the Messiah in all of those passages. And they all work together in a glorious harmony. Each passage, each verse working together as the culmination of God's special revelation to his people. And Jesus continues to fulfill what has been revealed for us in the scriptures. This is why we want to pay attention to what the Bible says is still yet to happen. And we don't have time to get into it, but if you get to 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, hey, pay attention to what the prophets say. It's going to light up 
your way, he says. You can check that out later in 2 Peter chapter 1. We want to pay attention to these things because the scriptures are harmonizing and they're speaking and they're revealing to us not just who Jesus was and what he did, but what he's doing and what he's going to do. All of these things working together, tied together, knit together in this beautiful tapestry that spans 1,500 years across all of these different cultures, across all of these different places, all working together because it was all inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter drives the point home, not only declaring the truth about who Jesus is, but also the fact of these people's guilt before a holy God. And that is part of the message of the gospel, that human beings are guilty, that we fall short, that all fall short of the glory of God. Now, we're all guilty of Christ's crucifixion, and that is a real problem, a problem that has to be dealt with. In verse 37, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The preaching of the gospel doesn't always lead to a response like this one. It's nice when it does, but it doesn't always. In this case, the message hit its mark for at least 3,000 souls that morning, the question's an interesting one. Think about it uh, in light of what Peter had accused them of. He says, you know, and he's, we saw it last week too, you people murdered the Son of God. You people rejected the Messiah who came and poured out his blood so that you can be saved, and you're the ones that killed him. And man, they say, w what can we do? And I think the question is, what can we do to atone for the rejection of the Messiah, what can I do to make up for murdering God's only begotten son? There's not a fine steep enough. There's not a prison sentence long enough, certainly not by our way of thinking. We think about this in, in regular human life, right? There are crimes and then there are crimes. Oh, wow. There are misdemeanors like, well, yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. There are crimes, yeah, it's a, and then there's things that are unspeakable where we think, wow, I, I don't even want to repeat what that person did, right? Now we magnify that to the infinite degree in a way that we can never comprehend that humankind murdered God's only son, rejecting him when he came and offered love and grace and the forgiveness and the, of sins. And they said, no, Barabbas, please. We would like Jesus to be murdered on a Roman cross. And I said, what can we do? Now, by our way of thinking, we think, yeah, there, there's not anything you can do to come back from that. Those of you who uh, are familiar with the old miniseries, uh, Lonesome Dove, <laughs> there's a great moment, right, with their sheriff, no, Marshall, Marshall, he's in Woodrow Call, right, our, our protagonist. He's got this young kid that he was kind of trying to develop. He's a lawman, and the kid gets in with the wrong crowd does a bunch of stuff. The kid doesn't really want to participate, but he's there. He's with the wrong people. And so they get to a point where there's this showdown and they have to bring these guys down. And the kid comes out and they're going to hang them all high. And there's this sad moment where the kid kind of pleads to his old friend Woodrow and he's like, can't you let me off, let me off the hook? And there's a great line. He says, you ride without laws, you die without laws. Right? And we have that understanding. Now, yeah, there's nothing you can do to come back from what you did. 
now we look at what these guys are saying. What, you just told me that I murdered the Son of God. What can I do? In the human way of thinking, you know, yeah, that's, that's it. You're, maybe somebody else can be saved, but certainly you can't be saved. Luckily, God is not like us. He would not withhold forgiveness from them. His mercy was ready to save. He's the one that sent the Holy Spirit on that morning so that these people could see what was going on and realize that they had a chance at salvation. Verse 38, and then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so the way to salvation was very simple. Repent and receive. That was it. It's important to know that to repent doesn't simply mean to feel bad. When we tell people they need to repent of their sins, that doesn't mean, hey, feel bad about your sins. Lots of people feel guilty and feel bad about what they've done because God has written his moral heart, uh, moral law on all of our hearts, right? So it's not about feeling bad. To repent in the biblical sense means to turn around, to change your mind, to believe God and trust him, that you abandon your sin and instead embrace God's righteousness. That's repentance. But now let's deal with two controversies within the church which bubble up from these verses. First of all, is verse 39 suggesting that the Lord only calls some and that he does not call others? It says, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The Bible is clear when speaking about God's heart and his character and his willingness to save. Again and again, when it's talking about God's work to save, it uses words like anyone, whosoever, all who. The argument should be silenced once and for all by this statement from Jesus in John 12, 32. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking uh, of his death, I will draw everyone to myself. So that should solve it for us. Now, the second controversy is a little bit more, uh, maybe you've heard of it a little bit more. It's Acts 2.38. This verse becomes a home base for groups who say that baptism is necessary for salvation, that it's not enough to just believe. If you believe and are not baptized, you're going to hell. And so they use this verse as a home base. Of course, they go beyond even that saying, well, it's faith plus baptism. It's not just baptism. It's a certain kind of baptism done in a certain way. Now, let's give just three reasons why baptism is not necessary for salvation. First of all, the idea is completely inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. For example, when Jesus told Nicodemus how to be saved, there's no talk of baptism. If you go to Jesus Christ directly and talk about how to be saved, I think he's probably going to give you the information that you need. And if he's not a reliable source of how to be saved, we've got a real problem. But if you were the recipients of Paul's letters, say to the Romans or to the Ephesians, you would never come to the conclusion that baptism was required for salvation. If it's true, then Paul was completely neglectful in his letters to say the Romans or to the Ephesians. He would have to send a P.I. Oh, man, did I not mention you have to be baptized? Sorry. You know, you would never come to that conclusion from Paul's letters. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says outright, Christ did not send me to baptize. And so those and many, many other verses are, are significant problems theologically. If you're going to come and say, well, Acts 2.38, it must be teaching you have to be baptized in order to be forgiven. Second, notice what the verse says there. It says, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they say that's the order that 
if you teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, they have to admit that using their logic and using this verse, you, you have to repent and then be baptized and then you're saved, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? The problem is we're going to see later in this book in just a couple of chapters that Cornelius and his household experience a different order. They believe and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then somebody says, we should get baptized. Yay, let's do it. And so apparently the Holy Spirit got ahead of himself and forgot what order he does things when it comes to Cornelius. I mean, it's kind of silly, but like, if I am not saved until I'm baptized, then what's going on here with, the, with Cornelius and his household? You've got a real problem because God's not a respecter of persons. These people can't be saved one way and other people are saved a different way. That's just, that's just not who God is. Third, for those that teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, ultimately, their system of theology is built upon a preposition. It's the Greek word ice, the word for in our translation, for the remission of sins. Now, we understand it to mean because of the remission of sins. For example, I'm going to the store for milk, right? I'm going to the store in order to get milk. We get it. I'm going to jail for mass murder. I'm not going to receive mass murder. I'm going on account of, right? We understand this. That's how language works. That's how prepositions work, right? And so while, while scholars argue and argue and argue over this, it's clear that the word ice here in the Greek is used in the sense of in order to receive and on account of, because of. And so we look at the rest of the Bible and say, hey, it's clear that you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's clear that people were saved in the New Testament before they were baptized. And so we say, obviously then, let's use the harmony of Scripture to interpret what, what is being said here. And so we see that you're to be baptized on account of the remission of your sins. But now notice a few precious things from Peter's answer to their question, what must we do? The first is to remember that we could never, ever merit salvation or earn God's favor. We just can't. Because from the eyes of heaven, all sin is sin, right? I may be really thankful that I wasn't one of the people that was instrumental in crucifying Christ, but my sin was just as responsible for the death of Christ as those people who shouted, give us Barabbas, right? That's the deal. And so there's nothing we could do to merit salvation, to earn God's favor. If these people would repent and believe, God would then be able to accomplish the remission of their sins. They did not pay God back for what they had done. They did not pay a penalty. They did not make it square with God. Remission means to be released from your obligations or debts. It means that you have a debt, you're not going to pay it, and the person to whom the debt is owed says, I'll forgive you the debt. It was a debt we owed and could never pay, but Christ willingly paid it himself. Second, notice the width of God's offer to them, their children, people near, people far, as far as you are from God. God says, you can come to me. I will save you. I'll forgive you. If you will repent and believe, I'll pour out my grace and my spirit on you. God's desire is to save everyone. Now, they must turn to him and receive salvation. We're not universalists. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. But God wants to save the worst of the worst. These were the Christ killers, right? That's what Peter says. He says, you guys are the Christ killers. And guess what? God loves you and wants to save you. And then 
we realize that, okay, now the Lord has sent me out to the worst of the worst to tell them that God loves them. Third, notice the importance of the Holy Spirit in Peter's words. Peter spoke of the Spirit as an essential. He didn't say, get saved and some of you are going to be Spirit-filled Christians. And others of you, you know, you won't be Spirit-filled, but it'll be fine. That's not what he says at all. To be a Christian was to be Spirit-filled. And not only was it essential, we see it was equal. Christ killers who became born again would have the same gift of the Spirit poured out on them as the 12. That's an amazing thing to realize. No caste system, no probationary period, immediate access to the Lord and all he promised. He says, hey, you people that demanded Barabbas instead of Jesus, you people who were maybe involved in the conspiracy to murder Jesus Christ, an innocent man, the son of the living God, God's gonna give you the same gift of the Holy Spirit that he's given us, his faithful 12. That's mind-blowing. Peter was a powerful witness that morning. He did not hold back his testimony. He spoke personally and pointedly. He served as an expert witness and as an eyewitness. And he is for us a great example to follow after. Because God desires to build testimonies in each of our lives, things we are eyewitnesses of concerning his goodness and glory, things that we can stand up before a lost and dying world and say, I have testimony to share to you. I'm an eyewitness of what God has done. And of course, those testimonies are going to be different life to life, but they're meant to be built and to be used so that we can take the stand as Peter did here and preach to those who need Jesus. We remember Jesus said to the man who had been demon-possessed, he sent him home and he said, go and tell them everything the Lord has done for you. It's the same thing that he says to us. Be an eyewitness of God's power and mercy. Paul says that Christians are a living epistle sent to testify to the world. In Revelation 12, it describes God's people as defeating the devil by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And so God absolutely wants to build multiple testimonies in your life that you can then take the stand as one of his witnesses and proclaim to the people around you. God intends to build eyewitness testimonies in your life so that you can speak not just generically or theoretically about God, but that you can speak personally about what you have seen him do and how you have seen him work and how you know him to be true and faithful, to demonstrate that he's not just a God, but that he's your God. Eyewitness testimony is very powerful. In the meantime, we're also able to follow in Peter's example as being an expert witness. Now, Peter was no scholar, not at all. Yet he unveiled the scriptures to this crowd in a way that they had never realized before, they had never heard before. They all knew these prophecies of Joel and David. They'd all read them and heard them and recited them a a ton of times. Yet they had completely missed their Messiah even when he was standing right in front of them. And Peter was able to speak expertly and definitively in a way that changed lives that morning. Why? Not because of intellect, not because of schooling or credentialing, but because Peter had internalized God's word and he was a man filled with the spirit. That was it. You see, these Jews had read all of these texts, probably had them memorized, but they didn't understand them. And Paul would explain why to us later in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so Paul, uh, Peter became an expert witness that day, not because he was smart or because he got some kind of degree in prophecy, it was because he was spirit-filled. And the spirit took the scriptures that Peter had hidden in his heart and mind and used it to change the lives of countless thousands of people. 
And so we can be not only eyewitnesses, but expert witnesses in God's word by being like Peter, hiding God's word in our hearts, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of witness God uses, the kind of witness he can't wait to use all over the world, the kind each of us can be, witnesses whose testimonies really do make an eternal difference.